I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode, the WTO rules against U.S. tariffs on China. We'll explain what that means and why it might have less of an impact on the trade war than you might think. Plus, we'll check in on the airline industry. Is going all in on a pivot to cargo the path to recovery? And the field for the next WTO Director General has narrowed. Who was cut and who's in the strongest position? Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, a World Trade Organization panel said Tuesday that the U.S. violated international trade rules by imposing tariffs on China in 2018 in the middle of President Trump's trade war. The panel of experts sided with a complaint that China had filed, which argued that Mr. Trump's tariffs, a.k.a. tariff man, violated several global rules, including a provision that requires all WTO members to offer equal tariff rates among the body's trading partners. Now, what about this, guys? I mean, this amid all the stuff that's going on between Trump and China, you know, yesterday Trump was at the UN and he was pointing fingers at China over the virus. Tensions with China are, shall I say, not so good. Including the House of Representatives passed a bill yesterday that affects the trade and goods associated with the repression of the Uyghurs. There you go. Yeah. It's happening everywhere. Yeah, it's happening everywhere. So it's called Section 301. Explain what Section 301 is before we go any further. Well, a couple things. First, I think it's worth noting that a lot of this stuff really are responsive to Chinese actions. Section 301 dates back originally to the Trade Act of 1974. It was enlarged and amended in the Trade Bill of 88. Basically, it allows, it gives the president the authority to investigate and take action against actions by other parties that are unfair or unjustifiable or burden or restrict U.S. commerce. It's a very broad statute. I at one point talked to the person who actually was involved in drafting it. From 1874? <laughs> no, the 88 version. <laughs> but I was there in 74, just not working on this. Now, 1974, not 1874. Yeah, well, that, that's, <laughs> uh, yes, this is true. This is 1974. Anyway, her point was that the objective of the statute was not to punish the other country. It was to force a negotiation. And it was structured so that there would be an investigation, and USTR had 12 months to do it. And then the president would stand up and say to country X, you're doing all these bad things, and let's have a, a discussion about that. And the implication is, if we don't, here are some actions that I'm going to take in response. What Trump really did is reverse that, which is, you know, he said, act first and we'll talk later. So he put the tariffs on and then said, let's negotiate which is the opposite of what the statute in, intended. And of course, China did what anyone would expect them to do, which is to take us to the WTO. And the reason they could do that is because when the WTO began, as a result of the Uruguay round, one of the commitments the United States made was to make sure that our trade actions stayed within the bounds of WTO rules, i.e. that we would not act unilaterally. 301 is a unilateral statute. And you'll notice that after the Uruguay round, we didn't use 301 until now, with a couple of other exceptions over the years, but they didn't result in action. 
this one did was pretty clearly uh, inconsistent with our obligations. Uh, and that's what the panel concluded, I think, to the surprise of nobody. Now, you know, it gets a little bit interesting to watch the rhetoric. The U.S. claim is that since a lot of the things that we're complaining about that China's doing are outside WTO rules, it's okay to act unilaterally. And that as far as we're concerned, it's a bilateral matter between us and China. And we settled it in the phase one agreement. The WTO panel noted, I think, with a certain amount of logic, China did not withdraw its complaint at the WTO after the phase one agreement. Uh, And when there's a complaint pending, it doesn't go away just because one of the parties says it's been resolved. You know, if both parties say it's been resolved, then you've got something. But the Chinese didn't do that. And the panel said, you know, as far as we're concerned, it's still pending because the Chinese are still complaining and the U.S. can't unilaterally declare it over and done with. So we lost. Look, we love trade policy and politics because it's got this layered approach to it. Uh, Bill's absolutely right that many of the provisions of Section 301 were alive in the Uruguay round negotiations, and our trading partners gave up some things to limit our use of the statute. And we went ahead and used it anyway. We didn't for a while, but we did in the Trump administration. Second, this is one of these, it's like the Red Queen, you know, sentence first, then trial. <laughs> so that, that's the kind of what we'd expect from the tariff man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got to throw in some Alice in Wonderland there, too. But this, you know, this, this happens in the real world, just to address a second. I, I once remember a conversation I had with the Egyptian trade minister back when we were talking about a, a negotiation with, with Egypt on a free trade agreement was in the Bush administration. He sort of looked at me and said, look, this is very simple. We sign first, then we negotiate. (laughs) And I thought, you know, that's not really the way the Americans do it. Right. But it's it's certainly not unheard of. But, you know, ultimately, this comes back to sort of the political quandary that the WTO is in. You know, you've got big cases now that can't be resolved. But what underlies the big case is basically something Bob Lighthizer said way back when he made his first public uh, speech as USTR at CSIS, where he said the international rules are not effective when the, the trading partner is China. They didn't envision this kind of challenge and they're not up to snuff. And he was right about that. Let me ask you, does the WTO ruling change the trade war in any fundamental way? And does China now have the moral high ground in your view? It doesn't make any practical difference. The tariffs are still there. Uh, They're not going away. We can make the case go away because we uh, really contributed to the the demise of the appellate body. And so the way it works now is if if the United States appeals this decision, it goes into uh, limbo because there's nobody to hear the appeal. But we have the right to appeal, which means that the case cannot be finally decided until the appeal is decided. So it sits there, and that's probably what we'll do. So no practical effect. I think it gives the Chinese the moral high ground. And if you look at the UN yesterday, the president gave a speech in which he blamed, I think, most of the world's problems on China, including uh, and beginning with COVID. And Xi Jinping gave a speech that said, basically, we're the good guys. We believe in cooperation. We believe in multilateralism. We believe in working together with others. uh, And we don't believe in, in being the world's bully. Hint. And, you know, you can believe that or not. But the Chinese understand uh, when they have a moral advantage and they're doing their best to exploit it. 
Yeah, their talking points are a little better than ours at this point. But on a practical level, yes, we lost this case. There was actually a case filed by the U.S. about the Chinese retaliation that the Chinese will likely lose when we get around to it. And so we are both sinners, but thanks to the demise of the appellate body, we get to keep on sinning. All right. So look, as Bill says, we're both sinners and nobody is uh, required to uh, mend their ways at this point. So we'll go on. And really, it's the quandary that we're left with, a trading system that isn't particularly effective at dealing with today's problems. Not a very Catholic outcome. Nobody's repenting, Andrew. I mean, it's kind of sad here. It is kind of sad. But Bill, since Scott brought up the Red Queen, let me just leave you with the immortal words of Miss Grace Slick of the Jefferson Airplane. Go ask Alice. I think she'll know. When logic and proportion have fallen sloppy dead and the white knight is talking backwards and the red queen is off with her head, remember what the Dormoose said. Feed your head. Feed Feed your your head. head. (laughs) You got it. You just dated all three of us, Andrew. You realize that. Yes. Remember, Bill, remember. I have a friend who used to live above Grace Slick's house in Bolinas, California. Her house was on the beach, and there was this enormous cliff. Uh, and my friend lived at the top of the cliff, literally overlooking Grace Slick's house. And subsequently, uh, the cliff collapsed and houses crumbled into the sea. So I don't know if Grace Slick's house is still there or not. But to be clear, that was a, a song by the, not the Jefferson Starship, but the Jefferson Airplane. Airplane. Yes. And we got an Absolutely. airplane story coming up, so... There's your transition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a hell of a transition. And it's hard to leave Grace Slick's home dangling in the ocean here, but I think she'll be okay. Amazing royalties on those airplane and Starship records. Partial to the airplane we are. But since you brought up airlines, Scott, let's talk about COVID and supply chains. Has there ever been a transition like that on trade, guys? Eyes are rolling everywhere. <laughs> right. But no, seriously, let's talk about COVID and supply chains. You know, the only major airlines making money these days are busy flying cargo, not passengers. And of the world's 30 largest airlines by revenue, just four reported profits for the April and June quarter, uh, according to a Wall Street Journal analysis. And they're all benefiting from a surge in demand for tech components, electronic gadgets, things that people need to work from home much of it produced in Asia. The analysis excluded some major carriers that didn't report quarterly earnings, but why does this matter? What is it telling us about supply chain, Scott? And should U.S. airlines try to shore up their cargo capacity by removing seats from planes, uh, offering fewer passenger flights? What about all this? Okay, well, look, I think this is one of these fascinating problems that get characterized as a supply chain problem. But in fact, it is a demand-driven problem, and it's come up all the time in COVID. It's analogous to the shortage of toilet paper and aluminum cans and lots of other uh, things that we noticed during the shutdown. Yeah, we learned last week on Trade Guys with our Canadian friends, remember, that how do you pronounce aluminum up there? Aluminium. So we learned that aluminium, we couldn't get caffeine-free Diet Coke because of Trade Man's tariff war with the Canadians. Right. But these shortages have been popping up. It happened in meats. It happened in several commodities during the period of quarantine or shutdown. And most of it was driven not by defects in the production chain itself, 
but by radical shifts in demand. Now, here's how you got to think about air freight. First of all, a lots of valuable items move by air in the supply system. In any production chain, a movement by air for valuable components is, is sort of de rigueur. It's part of just-in-time delivery, so to speak. But a lot of components, as well as finished goods, do travel by air rather than container ship or some other conveyance. Now, the second thing to think about is what an airplane looked like, a passenger airplane. It's a tube, and people are in the top half of the tube. So the next question is, so what's in the bottom half? Well, it's cargo. And it's cargo of all sorts. It's the mail. It's parts. It's components. There's a little space for luggage, but it, it's less luggage than you might imagine. Now, what happened in the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic? Air travel stopped, basically, and only came back to a modest level. So there are fewer airplanes flying. Now, that's fine from a people standpoint because fewer people either were able to travel or wanted to travel. So the top half of the plane is in rough balance. But there was much more demand for the bottom half of the plane than there were bottom halves of planes flying. Okay, this pushed up the price for air freight. Uh, one of the early beneficiaries uh, were our friends at FedEx, whose whole tube is filled with packages if you're FedEx. So they, don't, they don't transport yeah. people. But there's a lot of revenue in the commercial airline business for that, that lower half of the tube which is the cargo half. And because passenger headcounts have been so variable since COVID shutdown started, there's a lot of volatility in that market and sort of a lot of fluctuation in the cost and availability of air freight cargo space. So that's really what's going on. And much like the loss in passengers, the swings in cargo, both value and uh, the ability to charge higher rates has affected the profitability of airlines. You know, I want to say something about FedEx, Scott, because I love FedEx. I really, really look up to their CEO, Fred Smith. My only thing about FedEx is I wish that Fred Smith's son, Art Smith, had gone into the family business because if he had gone into the family business at FedEx, he wouldn't be the offensive coordinator for the Tennessee Titans, who took out my Baltimore Ravens in the playoffs last year so adroitly. And like maybe he's got a big future in FedEx. I don't know. Well, who knows? He's a good man. He happens to be working for a competitor of your team. So yeah. what can I say? Uh, but he's a good man and a good coach. So Really good coach, man. That guy is unbelievable. Got to tip my hat. But Bill, what about all this? Is this a path of recovery for U.S. airlines? Well, I don't. It's hard to see how it can be, at least in the short term, for the passenger airlines. They're not going to retrofit. Then they can only carry so much cargo. They are right now talking about imminent layoffs because they've been unable so far to persuade Congress to provide them with much financial relief, the relief they need. As Scott said, you know, they're all losing money except for the four that are in the cargo business. So the passenger guys are in trouble. And there's a press conference, I think, if not today, then uh, tomorrow with the CEOs of uh, what? United, Delta, and American, I think, saying that if they can't get help from the Congress, they're going to lay off uh, a lot of people. I mean, we're talking, you know, 15, 16,000 in one airline and, and more if you add them all up together. So it's a perilous situation for them. And people are not traveling. And, when, you know, when we talked about this earlier in the spring, we were talking about the impact of, of COVID longer term. I think one of the things that I think we predicted, and which is coming true, really, is, is the demise of business travel. 
Tourism, I think, will come back. The Grand Canyon is always a spectacular place, and people are going to want to go there. They're going to want to take their kids there when it's safe. With business travel, I think people have discovered that you can do Zoom or Microsoft Teams or something else, and maybe it's 80% as good, but 80% looks pretty good if the choice is you know, paying a business class ticket for somebody to go to Tokyo for 48 hours for two or three meetings and then come back. I think you're not going to see business uh, travel return. And that really is the bread and butter of the airlines because business travelers pay full freight. So I'm, I'm worried about their business model going forward. I think Bill's right. It's not a matter of converting airplanes in the middle of a, a big swing in demand. It's really a matter of getting back to the place where people travel again and helping the airlines sort of they will find the, the demand levels that, that exist. I agree with Bill, they'll be lower for business travel post-pandemic than they were pre-pandemic. But how much lower, nobody knows. But at some point, I, I think the only real solution for the industry is getting back to sort of normal levels of passenger travel and the cargo will move where it moves. What about our supply chains in general? Do you guys feel like our supply chains have recovered? Well, looking at most products, I think the answer is yes. There aren't crises. Now, we still are not at the sort of global aggregate demand for the world economy that we were before COVID. So the U.S. economy is smaller right now than it was in terms of total aggregate demand. And that will take people getting back to work. But for the current demand, I think many logistics and supply chain managers have spent six months doing heroic work to keep products on the shelves, to keep uh, factories running, to keep the economy going and managing logistics in a way that, that I think has been extraordinarily professional. So my hat's off to the people who do this for a living because it, it's really made a difference in lives. Bill, anything to add on that? No, I got nothing. Scott said it all. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it at that. All right. I know this is something you do have something to say about. The WTO director general race forges on. The UK's Liam Fox and Saudi Arabia seem to be have an unexpected toehold in the race for the top job. What do you think? Well, I think it probably won't last, but uh, you're quite right. If there were surprises in the selection, and for those of you that haven't been paying attention, they narrowed eight candidates to five, and the three that lost were the candidates from Moldova, Egypt, and Mexico, which was a surprise because the Mexican candidate, who had been Mexico's USMCA negotiator, was very highly regarded, very experienced, and a lot of people expected him to go uh, much farther in the process. The gossip is that a number of countries, particularly in Europe, have decided that they prefer one of the women candidates, of which there are three, uh, and they're all strong candidates. The two of them are from Africa, and one of them is from South Korea. So you have Kenya, Nigeria, and South Nigeria Korea. Nigeria and uh, Kenya. And that actually is, is is where I'm going because, you know, a lot of people have been saying, you know, it's time for an African and it's time for a woman. There's never been either running the WTO. But they've avoided saying, which woman? You know, and there's two very good ones from Africa, Ngozi Okonjo-Iwila from Nigeria, who had been her country's finance minister and so I recall briefly foreign minister, and Amina Mohammed from Kenya, who has been her country's trade minister, ambassador of the WTO, chaired the Nairobi Ministerial Conference, and is currently minister with a different portfolio. And we may be heading toward a situation where if they're the final two, people may be reluctant to choose between them. The gossip was that the Europeans in particular would like to see a woman get it, an African woman get it, uh, and their tactic was to make sure that the male candidates that went forward were the weaker ones. 
on the theory then that they won't make the next round and will end up choosing between the women. I think it was fair to say a lot of people felt that Seata was probably the strongest male candidate, and he got thrown under the bus. And the two candidates that people expected to be blocked, the Saudi candidate by everybody who's mad at Saudi Arabia, and the British candidate by many European countries who are mad about Brexit, and, and Liam Fox was a strong Brexiteer, they made it through. Uh, it turns out that Fox uh, has supporters in Europe and that it was more of a mixed bag as far as the European countries were concerned. He also has opponents, strong ones, for exactly the reason I said. So I would expect uh, the next tranche, countries have to submit two choices, and that lasts until October 6th, and then they're going to narrow it from five to two. My guess is that the Saudi and and British candidates will end up being uh, winnowed out, and the result is we will probably end up with two of the female candidates as the finalists. And that will raise an interesting question, because if the two they end up with are the two African candidates, and the African countries are divided— We don't know that yet. Not everybody announces their preference. But if the African countries are divided, the Europeans may have created a very awkward situation, which is countries are going to be forced to choose between two very different but very well-qualified candidates from very important countries in in Africa uh, that nobody particularly wants to irritate. Frankly, it would have been a lot easier if the final two were one of them and a guy. Because and everybody would have gone for the woman and it would have been a clear outcome. With two women as the finalists, particularly two well-qualified women, I can see this taking a while to try to figure out which one are we going to support. It would be complicated. Well, at what point did they put the vote to the trade guys? Well, <laughs> regrettably, we're not members of the WTO. I mean, Bill's been advising to the extent that he can. And uh, the, if anybody's listening to him, that's We actually interviewed all of them. Yeah. The good news is none of them are terrible and none of them are certifiably anti-American or not in Americans' interests. Well, that's good. And that was one of Ambassador Lighthizer's criteria. He was asked about this at some testimony and he said, They have to be pro-reform. They need to be bold. And as he put it, they can have no whiff of anti-Americanism. And I think it's fair to say that none of them really do have any whiff of anti-Americanism. I have no clue which ones the United States supported. Lighthizer acknowledged that Liam Fox is a personal friend of his. They know each other from things they've done together in the past. But then he immediately said that that wasn't going to influence the United States' judgment about who they were going to support. The last time around, they could submit four names. So that was a fairly easy you know, call for a country. This next time, they can only submit two, and that will be a lot more difficult. And I don't think the trade guys are going to take a position. Uh, Scott, are you? Uh, all I'm going to do is wish which, whichever candidate winds up being successful all the luck in the world, because I think it's more about the dysfunctionality of the WTO and the fact that the big members don't agree on almost anything makes that job a particular challenge at this point. So whichever qualified candidate is chosen, uh, they're going to need lots of luck in our support. Bill, how were you able to determine if there wasn't a whiff of anti-Americanism when you interviewed him? Did you like say, okay, do you like Bruce Springsteen? What is America's (laughs) football team? Um, Who won the national championship last year in football? Like, were you you asking questions like that? No, we were a little bit more direct. We just asked them, (laughs) okay, this is what Lighthizer said. Do you qualify? They all said yes. You know, as we said a couple of weeks ago on this, one of the pieces of information that came out 
kind of unexpectedly uh, earlier this month was that the Nigerian candidate and Ngozi and Kojiwiwela uh, actually is, is a dual citizen, including uh, the United States, uh, and has spent uh, much of the last 25 years living here. She definitely doesn't have a whiff then. So I don't think there's a whiff of anti-Americanism there. To the extent there's a difference between the two Africans, as I said, they're both highly qualified. I think most people would say that Amina Mohammed from Kenya is more the inside establishment candidate. She's got lots of WTO experience, has been an ambassador, chaired the main WTO committees during her tenure, uh, ran a ministerial conference, and got high marks doing it. And Gozi has no WTO direct experience. She was her country's finance minister and made a name for herself by aggressively going after corruption in Nigeria, which is not a small thing to do. And it's a courageous thing to do in Nigeria. It's hard to say how much of what she accomplished lived on after her. But I think people would say that she's the outside candidate and may very well be the bolder and more aggressive of the two. But as I think we said on an earlier issue, if you look at past directors general, we've had some bold, aggressive ones, and we've had some cautious establishment ones. You can't clearly say that one approach works better than the other. We've had bold, aggressive ones that have failed, and we've had passive ones that have failed as well. So I don't know what the right model is, but there is a difference of personality, I think. Guys, you are both great Americans, and I thank you for being such great Americans. Hey, we listen to Bruce Springsteen. We listen to the Jefferson Airplane. We're great Americans. That's right. No doubt. I can't be anything but an American, and I'm glad to hear I'm great. That's right. I do have to say, though, that my favorite song is from the Rolling Stones, so I'm defective in that respect. We don't have to make the trade guys great again. The trade guys are great. <laughs> Thanks. All right, guys. Next time. See you next week. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.